Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Your host is Becky Olson. Our show is here to help breast cancer patients, survivors, their friends, and family by providing resources, support, and inspiration they can use right now. Here is your host, Becky Olson. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Becky Olson. I'm the co-founder of Breast Friends. And as I mentioned last time, we are in our 20th year as an organization. And for those of you who don't know, I used to run most of the day-to-day kind of administrative parts of Breast Friends. And I've stepped back from all of that. And the only thing I really do anymore is the radio show. And I love doing the radio show. And we're always looking for interesting guests. So if you have a unique perspective on cancer uh, or just a, a, a really unique experience that was kind of traumatic and it's something that you have survived and you can share and be an inspiration to our audience, I would love to hear from you. You can just reach me at Becky at breastfriends.org and, you know, maybe we can have a chat and I kind of think that's how I found my guest today and I'm going to introduce her in just a, a couple of minutes here. But before I do introduce her, I wanted to share a little something that's kind of been on my mind a lot lately. And I, I know I've talked about this before, but um, I think that sometimes things are, are worth repeating. But, you know, I am in my fifth battle with breast cancer. I've been battling it off and on since 1996. And this time it is stage four. It's, it's spread to my lungs. And, and there are days when I feel like I could, you know, do anything I want to do. I don't feel like I have cancer or even close to cancer, but there are other days when I can definitely feel that there's something going on. And I wanted to share with you, you know, people tell me all the time that, you know, if anyone can beat this, you can because you're so strong. And and there are times when I feel that. I feel strong and I feel like, yes, I can beat this. And people are praying for me and I know that with God, all things are possible. So I, I'm really you know, feeling like that, but there are days when I don't feel so much like that. And I mean, like the last two days, I felt very much like I was battling something pretty serious. And so there are days, and I think that it's important for us to give ourselves permission to, to have days like that and to, we don't always have to live up to everybody else's expectation of what we can handle and what we can't handle. And when we, when I talked with our guest today, this was kind of the subject I had on my mind, and she is an expert in this field. And I think it's going to be very interesting to have her opinion and expertise kind of out there for all of us. So with that, I am going to go ahead and introduce our guest. Her name is Dr. Linda Denke. And Dr. Denke spent four decades in nursing and mental health, which is her passion. Her mantra is mental health directly affects physical health. And I can't agree with that more. So welcome, Dr. Denke. Thanks for joining our show today. You're welcome. And I'm so happy to be here. Well, thank you. Why don't you just take a minute before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of this whole conversation and tell us a little bit about yourself. I always like our audience to get to know our guests a little bit like I've gotten to talk a little bit about your hobbies and your family and, you know, just whatever you'd like us to know about you personally. Well, I would say that I have been in the healthcare profession for, as you said, almost four decades as a nurse. And more importantly, I started out um, with an interest in oncology, and I have spent most of my career in oncology with patients from the bedside on up, and now I do some research related to um, not necessarily uh, breast cancer, but cancer in general, and what are the risk factors that will affect uh, mental health, because that we'll get into in a moment. And then personally, I love to travel. I travel as often as I can when my work doesn't get in the way. And I love visiting small towns and villages, and sometimes that's what I like to write about. Small towns and villages like in the U.S., or do you travel outside the country? uh, Both nationally and internationally. Nice. Yes, can give you an example. Um, This summer and last summer, I was a medical missioner in Tanzania and Kenya, And that was extremely rewarding for me, and we take a group of students, and to expose them to what it's like to think on your feet and yet 
apply your nursing principles uh, is, is something that cannot be learned in a book. And people are so grateful uh, for the care that we do give, and I um, very much enjoy that. Well, I think that's wonderful travel. You know, I, I had a co-host on this show with me, Sharon Hannafin. She she and I were the co-founders of Breast Friends. We started this, you know, 20 years ago. And she has finally decided to retire. And her goal has always been to travel. So she's heading to Israel here in November. And she just goes wherever wherever the winds blow. I think <laughs> she's she's having a, she's having a great time. So I get I get the travel bug. I really do. And I've done a lot of traveling myself. And and uh, it's it's very fun to get to meet new people and to learn about different cultures. And and I think that's that's excellent. You know what you what you've been doing. So let me ask you this: So you've been a nurse for all these these this time, and then you got your doctorate. What is your doctorate in? Uh, my doctorate is a traditional Ph.D. Uh, in philosophy, doctor of philosophy, and okay. that is uh, applied to the field of research. So research okay. looking at nursing and how patients uh, can drive what we need to change in nursing based on evidence. So I do research all day. So that that's cool. So you're kind of a, a nurse doctor or a doctor nurse or yes. something, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> That's yeah, great. so they, they they say nurse scientist. Uh, that's a kind of the buzzword today. Uh, nurse researcher will do also. I answered it okay. to both. <laughs> Very good. So let me, why I guess why did you get into this particular field and why oncology? Was there some life experience that you had or somebody in your life or just yes? Um, when first of all, when I was caring for patients uh, that either were newly diagnosed or just um, happened to be diagnosed after surgery uh, with a cancer, um, I noticed that we didn't, as uh, providers, we didn't look at distress and a lot of the emotions that go with um, this process, as I'm sure you're well aware and your audience is, and we essentially ignored it, and I was very concerned uh, that when I began speaking to families as well as um, my patients, that that they were sometimes depressed. And, you know, of course, I would be very encouraging, as many families are, many providers are, but there are, you know, treatments that are effective, now I know. And then, personally, I've lived with um, my son, who is, in his last six weeks of law school, had a psychotic break, and it was my personal experience with mental illness and navigating that whole uh, that whole medical world that I knew nothing really about other than my mm. experience in my early days in oncology. And so he went from many hospitalizations. It was a bipolar disorder. And, you know, imagine the devastation that comes with having the excitement of your son going to law school and then getting ready to graduate, and then this occurs. So a tragic event can certainly um, initiate a depression um, in in all walks of life. So uh, I then watched him, you know, get well and then have a setback, and many five years went by, and then he became uh, missing, and then he was homeless. And now, after treatment and a lot of prayer and, and a lot of hard work on his part, as you know, there's a, there's a personal accountability in staying well and being well. It takes work. And uh, he is a practicing attorney again. Good for him. That just gave me goosebumps because, you know, you, you hear so many stories of people who kind of get, they kind of fall into this homelessness space and they all have stories and you know that it's not something you choose to do generally it's it's you know comes from other things that happen and you don't often hear about people pulling out of it and I am just so happy to hear that he's he's practicing you know that's that's amazing so let me ask you this question you know when I did my opening comments here about um, you know, sometimes you just don't feel it. But, you know, there's a certain amount of sadness that I think is 
expected with, you know, anytime you're going through something difficult or some kind of a trauma. But when does sadness cross over into clinical depression? Is there something that we can look at to know when we've crossed that line from one into the other? I think it's so important. Such an important question, and this is something that I do believe um, you need to ask your physician, you know, uh, are you sure that, you know, you might want to look at, I might be depressed? And why would I say that to a physician? Because it's not normally done. Screening is not, uh, sometimes they will ask you a question, even with cancer, um, you know, how are you feeling? And then they move on to, well, let's really address the physical and physiological issues. Things like when you have a sleep disturbance or weight or appetite, maybe you're becoming fatigued or mm-hmm. some other maybe recurrent thoughts of, you know, I just can't go on anymore. But the important thing is that you have to rule out the physiological effects. Are we sure it's not tumor burden? Are we sure it's not pain or nausea that's causing this, you know, wearing on my psyche? Is it any medication use, whether it's for pain or nausea or chemotherapy? Uh, What about Staying put when you're in your nadir and your counts are so low and you just don't get out, and if you're a very active person, um, you know, that can affect it, and that's physiological. You know, you really Mm -hmm. cannot get out, and your activity level will decrease. So as you can see, cancer-related physiological conditions, they occur, and they are different in all of us. So when you start having five symptoms of at least two weeks, which include things like, for example, depressed mood or you're losing interest in activities, weight change. Maybe you're feeling worthless or, again, like you just don't feel like it's all worth it. Uh, You might even have uh, thoughts of um, taking your own life. Um, But all of these symptoms must be evaluated together because mm-hmm. it's very easy, especially in breast cancer patients, to, to get confused about what is really happening physiologically versus when is my mood beginning to change. And again, you have to have five symptoms for at least two weeks of that list that I just, um, I just gave you. And it has to also be distressing enough for you to not be able to function. So there are a lot of factors that go into it. Now, I can go into risk factors, but we, um, we might want to hold off on that. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to go out to break pretty soon, but before we do, um, I want to kind of tie in the connection. In your experience working with patients, do you find that, that for some reason breast cancer increases that risk of, of depression or is it any cancer or any trauma or is there anything special about breast cancer in particular that can increase it? Well, I don't know if that question was clear. Right? That, uh, the evidence suggests, um, Becky, that uh, I'm talking about major depressive disorder mm-hmm. and that's what this conversation is about, sure. mm-hmm. uh, is that in breast cancer patients, um, there can be between 5 and greater than 20%, uh, which seems to be a bit more than the general population because some of the risk factors are being a female, maybe being unmarried, maybe having stressors such as you might not uh, have enough finances, you might be concerned about treatment when insurance um, challenges uh, come to the forefront. Sometimes mm-hmm. early childhood trauma can impact because you begin linking then what's happening now to what happened before and it couples or synergizes. The other things is you can have really not cope like you used to be able to. Your whole life begins to change and you're, it's called a new normal, but you have to learn that and you have to make adjustments and that's That takes a lot of effort, and it takes someone who is not always um, or depressed. Sometimes just lack of social support, 
or in particular the negative life event. But remember, the physician will always ask in risk whether or not you have a family member or a genetic predisposition in your family for depression. And more importantly, if you've had a depression in the past, a recurrence could is likely. Yeah. No, that makes that makes perfect sense. And and I know with with a breast cancer diagnosis because the treatments are so physically visible, you know, losing your breast or um you know, maybe not losing it entirely but having it reduced it can just add to that that I don't know the I guess we feel kind of mutilated sometimes. It can feel like that. And then you've you've lost that. So there's there's some definitely some physical things that add to that self-worth and the feelings that we have when we, you know, lose begin to lose our, our sensuality and you know, we go into estrogen loss overdrive. So you can go from from perfectly, you know, able to have children to not having children just like that, enter menopause very quickly. So your hormones get totally off, you know, kilter very quickly. And so all those things together, I'm sure, add up to to increasing this problem. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a short break and we're going to come back. And when we do, I think that would be a good time to go into some of the risk factors of full-blown depression. So stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to keep our doors open and to keep this radio program alive. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can visit us at breastfriends.org. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time for Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Visit breastfriends.org and contribute today. When was the last time you felt free? It's time to uncover that feeling again with the compassion of a cross and shield and the power of a card that opens doors to the best hospitals and medical centers in all 50 states. Giving you the freedom to love, to dream, to dance like no one is watching. Regions Blue Cross Blue Shield. Live fearless. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. tuned into Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. To reach the program today, please call us at 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to becky at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to our program. We've been talking about when sadness becomes full-blown depression and what to do about it with our guest, Dr. Linda Denke. And Dr. Denke, we, just before we went out to break, we just mentioned the risk factors, just that we were going to come back to that. So let's go ahead and pick it up right there and talk about some of the risk factors. And maybe in that, we can figure out some of the things we can try to do to prevent it going forward. So why don't we start there? Oh, I'd love to. Well, we did talk about a psychiatric history or what I call a genetic predisposition. And again, I um, can relate personally that my son has a grandmother who does have um, a bipolar depression. So I was um, keen as a nurse and a provider that the history in your family uh, may increase the odds, and that's proven. That That is, an, in fact, true. So if you do have a psychiatric history, mention that to your physician, and, of course, as a, uh, as a physician, he or she would be very apt to screen you for this depression. 
The other thing is, um, again, I, I said if you have um, a former or diagnosis of depression and maybe it was resolved, it could have been a situational depression. By that I mean a, it, it came for a while due to an event, something like your diagnosis, and you grieved a little bit and, you know, you shared your feelings, you got and you began coping, got in a support group and various other things um, to deal. And what can happen is if something else occurs and you have another triggering event that's traumatic, then that could reoccur and then not go away. So, so again, you might um, keep that in mind, too. So okay. a reoccurrence is common. Um, so let me ask you. Let me ask you something. Let me ask you something before we move on. Um, we're talking about genetic, you know, the genetic disposition to to have having depression. And you said to mention to your doctor, and then they would screen for that. How do you screen mm-hmm. for that? Well, there are screening instruments. For okay. example, in hospital setting, the providers already screen for distress, and there are factors things that um, you answer questions and then we rate you based on, you know, extreme distress, which would be a 10 and no distress, then anything greater than a 4 is considered significant. And if they've experienced 39 problems usually is what we agree to. And and the screening tool sits in what we call domains, Becky. So there's a practical side a, there's a family section, there's emotional, and there's even a spiritual and religious section because sometimes we, as we go through an existential crisis, when something happens to us that we consider we're not always going to be here, you know, and who's going to take care of our children and all, all of these, which mm-hmm. gets into the family section of this instrument. Now, that's just one instrument and we call them instruments in our field because what it does is it tell it measures something. Sure, there's that makes sense. Many um, the ASCO, as you know, um, uh, American Society of Cancer, um, that is a screening measure that they recommend, which is called the PHQ-9, and it's used mostly in primary care. And by that I mean like when you go to your doctor's office and mm-hmm. and and your or outpatient. And it's very easy to use. It's nine items, and the scale is zero to three. And, you know, we have very prescriptive ways to what we call score these instruments. So we're all not subjective. We're not saying, well, I think they look depressed because, you know, in fact, that's not true. (laughs) Just like with pain, (laughs) just because you look like you're serious doesn't mean you're in pain. And just because you're watching television or playing, uh, you know, uh, some kind of video game or you're on your computer, you could be in severe pain. And if you say, I'm a 10 out of a scale of 1 to 10, and as a provider, we take your word for it. And that's, mm-hmm. that's another good example of, of we have to go on what you're self-reporting. So, so okay. again, that's how depression is. Remember, there's no, there's no blood test for depression. Right, right, exactly. And I, I guess I was kind of... I hadn't heard about screening for genetic depression, and I wasn't sure how they did that. I was pretty sure there wouldn't be a blood test, but I just, I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't missing something, you know. So, um, so what are some of the other? Okay, so genetics is a risk factor, and what are some of the other uh, ones? Yes, and that's considered psychiatric history. So okay. the other risk factors would be that you're female. Well, that's obvious. You know, if you're female gender, the, the risk for depression is higher. Um, really? If you're unmarried, um, the risk is higher. And now this is all the evidence. This is what the evidence suggests in the okay. literature. So if you are having struggles uh, financially or what we call maybe some lower socioeconomic conditions, um, so maybe you've lost your job and you're worried about your insurance or maybe you weren't working and... Uh, those kinds of things enter into it. So socioeconomics is important. If you've had um, a early childhood trauma, that also can impact things. Uh, those are some examples right there. Again, 
the diagnosis or the negative life event doesn't have to be cancer. It has to be an event that causes a change that triggers loss or humiliation. Mm-hmm. Okay. So your scene is different. Maybe your role is changing. Um, maybe you used to be a breadwinner and now you have to cut back to part-time and that's part of your self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And again, maybe as a woman, you were very you know, pleased with your weight loss program or your gym workouts and then that becomes where you have to, again refresh and become a new normal, your life Mm -hmm. changes. And so that's considered a loss. And you can see that's the triggering event, too, that causes these other factors to kind of come to the forefront. And when they all come together, because usually there's two or three that happen at the same time or within the same period of time, Mm -hmm. you can see how that becomes a force to, to trigger a depression. Yeah, that makes sense. So, okay, let's go back and talk about the symptoms because you kind of flew through those those symptoms pretty quickly. And I, I think our, our listeners would be very interested in maybe knowing a little bit more about some of the details of those, the symptoms of depression, which would tell us what, you know, really specifically what to look for. And uh, I wrote some of them down, but I couldn't write that fast. So <laughs> I'm going to have you. Oh, I'm so sorry. Go, no, no, that's okay. Uh, I'd I'm be just happy. Slow. So, um, be so happy let's talk too. about that. Okay. Great. Okay. Now, remember, we have to have these symptoms for five of them for at least two weeks. And one of the symptoms must be, must be a depressed mood or loss of interest in your usual activities. Okay. Okay. Now, once you rule out physiological reasons for those two, then you start seeing the depression surface. Okay, so if it's not tumor burden, it's not treatment related, it's not pain or nausea, medication, uh, or cancer related, other cancer related, you know, if you've had surgery or or you've gotten infection, then Mm -hmm. if these symptoms appear, one, either depressed mood or loss of interest with five, okay, five total, five total with one of those that I just mentioned, then that indicates you need to get treatment, okay? Because okay. depression doesn't get better on its own, and it is treatable, and medications okay. work, as well as support or non-pharmacological things uh, that we can talk about later strategies that, that will work. So if you have a significant weight change, and it's, the baseline is greater than 5% in one month, that would be a good indication that maybe something might not be right. And that's and up or down, it. right? Uh, increase or decrease yes, in weight, change doesn't matter. Of 5%. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, you can also have some, what we call agitation. You know, things just are really bothering you or you wake up agitated and you go to sleep agitated. Again, the two-week period, if that's starting to surface, then that, that could be a sign. I always say in mental health, when any patient tells me they have some concerns about whether their diagnosis could be cancer or diabetes, and if there's some um, deterioration, I ask about their sleep because sometimes sleep will improve many, many of our symptoms. Okay, so sleep is important. I think we we neglect to uh, talk about it, and I also think sometimes we don't remember how important it is, similar to nutrition. Mm -hmm. Now, if you begin to feel these feelings of worthlessness, excessive or inappropriate guilt, uh, symptoms that seem to come out of nowhere and linger, those are symptoms that you need to have they're clinically significant. Uh, what about um, maybe thoughts of death or suicide? Now, not that we all don't have those when something tragic occurs. It's the lingering and the wanting to take action that that is a great concern. You need to get um, you need to get treatment immediately. Okay. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And they, a lot of times they'll ask you, have you ever thought about or considered suicide? My my medical team asks me questions like this pretty much every time I go, <laughs> you know, to see the doctor. Yes. And, and that's so far, occurring. So far I've been able to say a... no, you know. <laughs> but but right. yeah, I, I suppose if I ever got to that place, that would be a big sign of something changing. Yes. I, I would very much encourage that, that you, you know, be able to have that conversation with your physician and that's when they ask you the question and everyone does today whether it's acute care and you're in the hospital or you're an outpatient that question comes up it's a uh, it's for for the screening piece that one question can tell us a lot about where the patient's um, uh, mood is at and and how they're feeling okay good okay um, so anything else on that on that line before we move on to Kind of the next area? No, because I think that those symptoms, that, that bucket of symptoms, Becky, is, is what you can at least aim for if go through your checklist. Is this happening? Is it lasting more than two weeks? And does it really affect my mood or do I feel a loss of interest in my usual activities right. for no other physiological reason? So like if you have those two plus email. three of the others, then there's a yes. good chance that you've got depression. Okay. This is yes. so helpful. I've never really had it spelled out this way before. So I think this is this is really good information, and I thank you for taking the time to be on the show with us and talk about that. So let's talk about, um, we've already sort of talked about how do I know if I have depression, and that's pretty much what you were just describing. Here's the symptoms, and then here's what to know. So let's move on to what can we expect if I've been diagnosed with depression? What What's the next step? What happens? Well, again, once you're screened, then, then the interventions can take place. And I can talk about both um, medicines, which we call pharmacological uh, management, as well as what we call the non-pharmacological management. Okay. And without going into specifics as, as far as the medication itself, um, the treatment for depression medication-wise is usually an SSRI, which is it, it elevates um, serotonin. And, okay. you know, that is known to, to you know, lift, lift the elevator uh, in our neurotransmitters, which are, are all in our brain. They're like little gas tanks, and they fluctuate up and down all the time, like a monitor. And, and when it gets too low, that's when, you know, this is physiological symptoms. We just cannot measure it other than these screening tools. We can't really sure. do a blood test or an X-ray or an MRI uh, because it doesn't exist. Now, hopefully one day we will aim for that. Uh, and then that would be the first line pharmacological treatment. So, are there some drugs that are known by by name that that would have that where they're increasing serotonin? What are some common drugs that we might have heard of that? Uh, that well, that you could probably look at um, some Paxil, maybe. Um, just that's about all I can think of offhand. Um, there's so many, um, and they're they're different types. Uh, sure. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. So I, I don't want to prescribe. You know, I'm not a I'm not a, a, a physician. Uh, right. No. I, no. I was just wondering because we know we've all heard about the names of so many drugs, and some of them you hear might increase the risk of suicide, or they just you know there there's some of them come with a lot of baggage, and and I don't know how much of that is based on truth and how much isn't. You know, and I and I don't know. I just this is. Again, this is new conversation for me, and I'm sure for many of our listeners, but, you know, we've all heard of these certain kinds of drugs on TV, you know, and I'm not sure right. which ones just elevate serotonin, which ones have other things that they do. So um, are there some alternative treatments and not not using medication? Oh, yes. There's many things that um, we can do. So, for example, you might look at... Um, the, the literature does show that um, these kind of interventions involve either groups or support groups. They specifically mentioned, you know, breast cancer support groups, which is common. You know, you usually get a referral, um, at least in the institutions I worked at, and it's very, very helpful. Patients have, have said that, you know, it's been a lifesaver. 
these kinds of forums where um, patients can listen and talk about freely um, their symptoms and concerns. Um, we also can recommend psychotherapy that goes and works in concert with the medication. So cognitive okay. behavioral therapy, it's a form of psychotherapy, and that was developed specifically to um, treat major um, depression. And, and what it does, Becky, it, you replace your, uh, your maladaptive thoughts or your behaviors or beliefs with more adaptive ones, and that's what you work on in the session. So it's a very active process. You get homework assignments and things mm-hmm. like that. Okay. Uh, problem solving and so on. And again, the group formats are really, really important uh, as far as non-pharmacological methods. Now, of course, your spirituality can be helpful. Um, you can look at, um, you know, um, exercise and stress management. You can also look at there's some, like we've all heard of ECT, and I won't go into that because it's a very safe treatment, and I just think it kind of got a bad rap in some of the, you know, movies we've watched and things like that. But, you know, it is effective, and it does work um, it, as as something that is used if you have resistance to medications or if the traditional first-line treatments are not working as effectively, then, then the mm, physician okay. would progress along. You know, we what, have what, is, what does that stand for? E- ECT, is that what you said? ECT is electroconvulsive therapy. Oh, that, electrocon- is, yeah. that doesn't sound and, fun. <laughs> yes, no, no, it doesn't, and, and, um, but it is effective. Okay. All right. You know, I just asked our uh, engineer if we could skip our next break because we still have a lot to talk about. So I hope that's okay with you. We're just going to roll on through here. So um, yes. just because I, I don't want to run out of time covering these because these are all really important conversations. So, okay. So group therapy, I mean, group support, some kind of uh, uh, psychotherapy and these other treatments. Is there anything else for treating depression that is non, non-medicine related? No, I would say that's a pretty good list. Okay. And again, the treatment would work in concert with the medication. So you would you would be prescribed both, and many times you can initiate these uh, other treatments on your own. What works for you? If you're mm-hmm. if you think uh, stress management, something like mindfulness, meditation, relaxation, those are all considered ways to manage your stress. For example. Okay. So Good. that would yeah. be in addition to the medication. That's great. And well, just sometimes just being able to calm yourself and just, you know, kind of reflect and feel, just feel what you're feeling and don't try to shadow it or cover it with anything. You just feel what you're feeling. And sometimes you just need to kind of do nothing to make that happen. You just just slow down sometimes and you know I know my my daughter practices yoga and mindful meditation you know exercises and you know she's raising two young boys you know and her husband they have a business and you know it it can be very stressful but that's what she does and it's really been helpful to her you know to kind of overcome some of those moments of stress and you know stress is never good for you as they say it can lead to other you know other issues um so let me let's talk about depression and cancer treatments because again you know you mentioned that sometimes it's the treatments of of the disease that we're dealing with and so if we can focus on breast cancer since most of our audience is interested in that um the treatments that we have are they what can we do by we don't want to interfere with the treatments and the effect of the treatments by doing something with with depression that's going to have a negative impact on that so I'm not sure what I'm I know what I'm asking I'm just not sure how to word it so um, yes I, I think I know and um, I think what you're asking Becky is we don't want to give you a medication that's going to either um, dilute or or um, uh, I guess, intersect uh, and cause other side effects. Um, yes, when thank you. you. Depression. <laughs> That's exactly yeah. what I wanted to uh, know. Well, there's little evidence to suggest that antidepressants um, for women with breast cancer should differ from general prescribing practices in, in um, psychiatry. Uh, 
with one exception. And there's special considerations, for example, women going undergoing hormonal therapy with tamoxifen. Mm-hmm. And what can happen is that's when you have what we call an interaction. The tamoxifen can have some, uh, by blocking the antidepressant, can block the tamoxifen metabolism oh. and lower lower the tamoxifen active metabolite levels. And some of those um, are specific, um, paroxetine, fluoxetine, and serotonin. Uh, For example, um, fluoxetine is Prozac, okay. and paroxetine is Paxil, like I said earlier. So that's, one of, that's the group that has what is known as the SSRIs you know, the serotonin, uh, lifting serotonin. It's a blocking reuptake medication, and that's what we call it. And so you want to make sure that, um, you know, ask that question. Is this medication, you know, going to interfere with my treatment? And and certainly from the evidence that I just... um, answered your question, I think that it's obvious that, you know, that would be the only circumstance that we know okay. of. Okay. So it would, that's, it's really important for if you're going to use a, a doctor or go see a, a doctor that's outside of your oncology team, that mm-hmm. they really have a full sense of what's going on in your life so that they would know if you're taking something. And, and I think too often we we don't really understand the the drug interactions and we don't necessarily talk about them. But clearly, based on what you just said, I never would have thought that something like that could impact the use of tamoxifen and what it's doing in our bodies. So, um, Yes, and that yeah. happens with what we call the synergy, Becky. Um, and I believe that providers today are doing a really, really good job of saying, now are you taking any supplements? And, you know, if you're taking St. John's wort, that's his you should not be prescribed an antidepressant because sometimes uh-huh. we, as even uh, whether we're a clinician or not, we, we attempt to treat ourselves and say, oh, mm-hmm. I'll take omega-3s or I think yeah. we should start juicing. Uh, well, that's all well and good, but, you know, those kinds of non-pharmacological um, behaviors and nutrition, you know, it takes a while. So mm-hmm. you can begin those processes, but in the meantime, you're deteriorating from the untreated depression, which we all know um, that depression is undertreated and underreported. You know, and, and I think so often we tend to, and one of the things we tell our the patients that we work with through Breast, Breast Friends is, you know, stay off the internet for a while. You know, because I think there's a tendency to try to self-diagnose based on some symptom that you plugged into a search and, and, and then you get into somebody's blog post who's got all the answers and they really don't know what the heck they're talking about. So, you know, and there's this tendency to self-diagnose or think you're going to die because you're, you something you just read and, you know, you need to be talking to your doctors. And, you know, if you've got a team, like where I get my treatment here at, in Portland is at the Providence Cancer Center, and they've got the psychologists and they've got all the people right there. So they all know if there's something going on, they're all going to know because it's right there in my record. And and not everyone has that luxury of being able to do something like that. But make sure your doctors are all, you know, tied into what's going on and what medications you're on. And so when they ask you those, what medications are you on? That's why they need to know. So, so really to our listeners, just really be very thorough when you're presenting that list of, of medications to your doctors. So I want to ask you about relationships because I'm keeping my eye on the clock. I don't want to run out of time. And there's so much to know about each of these areas that I've asked you about. And, but we have to move on. <laughs> so um, I want to ask you about relationships because I think I, I love my husband dearly. He likes to fix things. And I think that's a, a very traditional male role is they want to fix things. And what, what can the, what's the role of our spouse? You said it's fem- being female is a risk, which means it's going to be more women dealing with this. And if you've got a spouse, um, what can they do to help you through this? What, what role can they play? Because they probably I'm can't I'm glad fix you it. asked that question, Becky. Uh, families 
this is a family disease, just like mental illness is. And one person isn't, you know, sequestered out because they are suffering from a condition. That is, that is so false. And um, much of my work is in families and how, how we're affected. And, you know, sometimes we even take on the same symptoms, you know, um, just psychologically of the persons we love and care about. And um, depression can be one of them. So when you do have a diagnosis of breast cancer or you're on your journey in treatment, uh, your partner is more apt to maybe become depressed. And so the same types Mm. of things we just talked about uh, might need to be brought to his or her attention because it's the same in everyone. We diagnose using the screening tools and we look for these these symptoms that are lingering and not going away, such as the change in mood as well as uh, some of the others, the appetite and sleeping and so on. So... You just need to be aware and bring it to the family's attention. And mm-hmm. you need to understand that this is a family disease. So cancer uh, in and of itself has brought on a family trauma. And everyone that loves you is going to be affected. So yeah. it's difficult as a, even a mother or the matriarch of the family Oftentimes, you know, you feel that extra burden, like what's going to happen and how are they going, you know, I've heard uh, uh, women say he's never made a meal at home, you know, by himself. And that's, you know, in in the generation that women traditionally stayed at home and then they're Mm -hmm. not there. That's very difficult. But if you're working and you have... those responsibilities, you could be the breadwinner, you could be the person that manages and coordinates all the life events and getting the kids to and from school and so on. That's a huge responsibility. And so someone has to pick up the slack and then, you know, they become so overwhelmed with their new responsibilities. Mm-hmm. So you can see how this is a family disease. Oh, yeah. And, and I rem- I rem- I remember going through cancer the first time back in 1996, and I I had those thoughts because, you know, I was the the major breadwinner at that time, and, you know, my company provided the health insurance, so I couldn't really leave, you know, Um, and we had small kids at home. We had five kids, but three of them were still at home, and I remember thinking, I didn't know if I was going to live or die. I mean, when you're first diagnosed, you don't know. Now, the good news is most women will survive this more than than used to and it's gotten better but some still will not and it's it's very sad but you don't know when you're first diagnosed if you're going to be in the group that survives it or not and I really didn't know if I would and I remember teaching my kids it was okay to eat peanut butter and jelly for dinner because it's better than not having dinner and I taught them how to make macaroni and cheese out of a box just in case I wasn't there to fix them dinner. Now, fortunately, my husband is, you know, he's a pretty creative cook at times. And um, But those thoughts went through my head. What if I'm not here? Are they going to know what is okay to do? And I taught them how to do their laundry. And it's just kind of silly what we put ourselves through. But, but I think it's actually not silly when you think about it. But um, there's a stigma that goes along with being diagnosed as depressed. How do we get past that stigma? Oh, that's something that we are all working to become um, stigma-free. In fact, mm-hmm. there's even a, a, a mantra, you know, the stigma-free or stigma busters. We have all kinds of uh, acronyms that we're moving um, in the mental health field to, to just say, let's talk about it. It You know, I remember the days, and maybe your audience won't believe this, but I remember the days in my early years in oncology when a patient was diagnosed. It didn't have to be breast cancer, but many times it was. And and we were asked not, as nurses, not to tell the patient that they Mm. had cancer because of the stigma. Wow. There was a silence that overcame that family. They were almost, you know, who's going to take care of the, that family? Because if we couldn't talk about it, how could we be effective in our nursing care? So just be in that when it comes to mental illness. What if someone said they were afraid to talk to you? And many of our providers, I think, uh, are still learning how to have conversations about individuals who happen to have mental illness. Mm -hmm. A lot of my work today, 
is about risk factors related to the inpatient setting. So if a patient's going to have surgery, what is a risk factor that they might not do as well? I think that's very important because I have to have conversations many times if a person has mental illness and they're being treated, which is a good thing, but those medications might lead to, if we give them pain medications with that, that can cause some serious occurrences. So oh. we're looking at risk today in all of diagnosis, in every single specialty, because we want to know how to be and get ahead of what may occur and what may happen. And this treatment and technology improve, as you said, my aunt had breast cancer 25 years ago. Wow. And the, I still golf with her, and I'm always really <laughs> proud awesome. of her. Yeah, you know, I, I have to say we're we're out of time, and I'm I'm really sorry to cut you off, but I've just made a decision. I'm going to have you back on my show. Would you come back on? Because we still I have a lot to, to talk about, on. and we are out of time, and we didn't even get to talk about your story in Lost and Found. So um, we're going to talk about that next time we have you on. So we'll we'll stay in touch and get you back on soon, if that's okay with you. Um, but in the meantime, that was a great note to end it on because you know what, there is always hope, and um, we just. You know, that's part of what this show is about. It's not about the gloom and doom of cancer. It's about the hope that is behind all of this. You know, it, all of it is is here to help us lead better lives. And so, Dr. Danke, thank you so much for being a guest on our show. If people want to reach you, do you have an email or a, a website they can, they can reach out to? And I, it needs to be the quick answer because we're almost out yes. of time. Uh, they can go to Linda Danke Ryder, all one word, no spaces, dot com. That's okay. the best way you can read about my work. Wonderful. And thank you again for being on there. You know, our, our podcast is available across all platforms. So if you're listening and you've been enjoying our show, please share our our podcast with your friends. That's how we build our audience. And we can't do it without our listeners, you know, totally supporting this. So just, you know, pass it on, share it with the with the people in your lives. And, you know, consider making a donation, but mostly consider supporting us by sharing the, the podcast links with your friends. So remember, we will be back next week. And until then, there is always hope. And we are here to help you find it. Thank you for listening to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Please join Becky Olson again next Wednesday at 12 o'clock noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. There is always hope, and we are here to help you find it. We'll talk again next time.